Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, we have come to the point where we need to start leaning on guests to get us through this time of podcasting. It can't just be you and me anymore. It's hard, man. It's hard watching baseball games all on our own. I mean, we're doing we're doing the heavy lifting for all you folks out there, but you you don't know how hard it is to have to go back and watch full baseball games. It's uh, not just full baseball games. Some of the greatest baseball games ever played. Yeah, exactly. You think you think we have it. You think we have it good, but you don't know. You don't know. I'm referring to, of course, the fact that Sean Doolittle is going to be joining us for this episode of Tipping Pitches Classics. We're going to be doing 1999 ALDS Game 5 between the Boston Red Sox and the Cleveland Indians. So we, we went really long with Sean and he was really gracious with his time. So we're going to get straight into it. Um, I do want to say before we get started that, you know, internet is not great for everybody out there right now. And we are no exception. And the internet was dropping out a couple times on the call, the Zoom call with Sean. So uh, hopefully I can cut around that after this is recorded. But um, if not, there might be a couple times where there's some garble or whatever. And we apologize. But we think that the rest of the conversation and Sean breaking down the pitch repertoire of Pedro Martinez, the greatest right-handed pitcher of all time, will make up for it. Um, so we're going to get right into that. But before we do, I'm Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Baisley. And this is Tipping Pitches, featuring Sean Doolittle again. All right, Sean Doolittle's here. Back for the second time. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. In these strange times, we are happy to have a semi-familiar face to the podcast. Welcome back. (laughs) Thanks for having me, guys. I'm super excited about this. I'm stoked. So we DM'd you. We DM'd with you a little bit about uh, what games we might want to talk about, whether you'd be interested in doing this. And you, of course, are a big baseball stand like us. And you came with (laughs) a bunch of really good recommendations. And we landed on 1999 ALDS Game 5 between... Cleveland Indians and the Boston Red Sox. So I'm going to do the big long summary a little bit later. For now, I want to talk with you and Alex. Hello, Alex. About (laughs) (laughs) about just like why this game popped to you and and what maybe our relationship is with a lot of the players on these teams and with maybe Pedro specifically. So Sean, you threw this game. I think you were the first person to drop this game into our Twitter DM thread. So what was it about this game? Um, well, I wanted to do something from the late 90s, early 2000s uh, era, uh, because for me, uh, I'm 33. And for me, that era, like when this game happened, uh, October of 99. Uh, so that makes me 13 when this game came out or when this game happened, I should say. And this was such like a formative time for me as far as like becoming more of a baseball fan, continuing to fall in love with the game. Um, and I wanted to do something from this timeline, but I, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to maybe try to get some Pedro in there. 
Um, Pedro and Randy Johnson were like my two favorite pitchers when, you know, from back in the day, they were always the guys that I was trying to imitate when I was playing, playing wiffle ball in the backyard. Um, I also threw out Pedro's start against the Yankees in September of 99, where he struck out 17 Yankees, um, at Yankee stadium, which was like, um, it's kind of considered to be like the Pedro game. Um, I know he did. He had that one outing when he was uh, a Montreal Expo where he took a no hitter through nine innings, might have even been a perfect game uh, through nine innings and then lost it in the 10th. Uh, there were some other iconic Pedro games, um, you know, the, the fight at Fenway Park against the Yankees where he gets into <laughs> it with, with Don Zimmer. Um, obviously, Infamous. his outing. Yeah, his outing from the uh, uh, All Star game in '99. Um, there it's are like se- five minutes before we got into this podcast. <laughs> you were like DMing us highlights. <laughs> <laughs> yes, p- uh, pitching ninja uh, put together a a, uh, a minute and twenty five seconds long of, of just jump cuts of every pitch he throws, and you know, I mean, everybody remembers him going through essentially six Hall of Famers at the beginning of the game and striking out five. Uh, Matt Williams gets an infield single because he hit it so softly towards second base that he was able to beat it out. But like just an incredibly dominant outing um, against some of the best against some of the best hitters of that era. Um, So this was like a little bit deeper of a cut. I thought Uh, a little bit, maybe off the grid. This game has fireworks early and it has uh, Pedro, obviously uh, his masterful relief appearance uh, for the last six innings of the game. So it kind of had a little bit of everything. It was action packed start to finish. So, um, uh, that's why it was pretty high on my list. Alex, what's your relationship to 1999 to 1999, uh, yeah. being, being three years old, <laughs> <laughs> having no awareness of the concept <laughs> of baseball. <laughs> and, and like, as far as like Pedro goes, like I was, I mean, I, you know, I grew up in Oakland as an A's fan, but my, my mom is also a Yankees fan. And so like my relationship to Pedro was also, was always a little more like, I don't know, antagonistic or something like that. Like he was, it, it, it's very easy to kind of like see him as this villain, especially if you like have the, the highlight of him throwing Don Zimmer to the ground and you don't realize that like Don Zimmer totally like just charged the dude and he kind of had no choice. <laughs> <laughs> so so it is interesting just like kind of growing growing up a little bit and just like watching these games of him which like Bobby you and I are too young to just watch him in his prime but it's it's incredible stuff. You trying and to tell me it, that those years that he was on the Mets were not his prime? <laughs> close, close. <laughs> yeah, I mean I I'm I'm kind of in the same boat like it was always we caught him just at like when I was like sentient watching baseball games, we yeah. caught him or when I can remember, we caught him at the tail end of his career and not even like in his prime anymore. But um, like he's still very present in our lives. He's on TV all the time. There's reasons to think about how great he is, but I find myself not really doing it enough. You know, we've we've done now. This is our, I think, fifth week of doing these summaries. And there have been we've always managed to land on pitchers who are incredible somehow. I guess that goes to say more towards what our taste is. But, you know, we've seen Randy Johnson, we've seen Roger Clemens, we've, we've seen Jack Morris, and we've kind of been talking around Pedro as the maybe the greatest pitcher of all time. And 
maybe we shouldn't have been, but I'm glad that now we kind of get the opportunity to talk about him in this game. You mean, greatest pitcher of all time behind Sean Doolittle, you may, I'm assuming. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah, Pedro, greatest greatest right-handed pitcher of all time. Okay, <laughs> there, you <of> <laughs> there you go. There you go. I mean, very seriously, like his his run from 97 through 2003 like is absolutely historic like maybe the highest peak of any pitcher um and i i don't know for whatever reason like i don't think he gets talked about enough um i i don't i i'm really not sure i mean that was kind of like the golden age for home runs uh, i think when people think of that era they think of uh griffey and mcguire and sosa and um you know i I, I'm really not sure why, but I mean, during that time period, he led the league in strikeouts three times. He's throwing 200 innings every year with the exception of 2001, um, leading the league in ERA, like during, you know, five of those seasons. Um, and then his peripherals, I mean, if you want to get really into the weeds, they're all off the charts. He's leading the league in everything. It's like, um, and all doing it while throwing like wiffle ball looking changeups and breaking balls. And, uh, it, I don't know. He was this, he was this, this little guy, uh, you know, he's not very big in stature. He doesn't have the prototypical pitchers build, but, um, he's doing things with the baseball that nobody else was doing. And, um, I, I always had, I'm just barely old enough to remember him and his prime. Um, and, um, I just think back to this era in baseball. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 13. I'm in like eighth grade. I'm about to start high school and, um, being like a huge baseball fan, watching the playoffs during this era, falling in love with the game. The, the Red Sox were one of those teams that were always in the mix. So when I was looking at a lot of these games and, and making that list to you guys of games that I proposed, I think there were two or three Red Sox games in there. Uh, we also had a, a an ALCS game from 2004 that was on the list um, as well. Um, but like, man, I just remember like I, I played in a fall baseball league and I would, you know, in New Jersey. So it was, it was chilly, man. It had the feeling of postseason baseball uh, going, going to play and then coming home and watching the end of these games. Like this was, this was such an, an awesome time to be a baseball fan. And uh, so going back to watch this game, I had so much fun. Fall Baseball League in the Mid-Atlantic or in the Northeast. That's, that's <laughs> touching back on some nostalgia that I didn't know that I needed right now. Our Fall Baseball League used to like, we, we used to just be the professional teams or whatever. Like that was how you got divided up into teams. Like, you mm-hmm. know, in your regular season, you're like the sponsor or whatever. But uh, but yeah, on our fall teams, we used to like wear the Red Sox jerseys or like knock off Red Sox jerseys. It's definitely illegal. Like we definitely weren't allowed to do that. But <laughs> uh, I'm going to do a, a, an abridged version of the summary. So let's get into it. Down two games to none. The Boston Red Sox have come storming back and they are the American League Championship Series. No hits allowed by Pedro Martinez from the fourth inning on. Holy juiced ball, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> no, I'm not talking about 2017 World Series Game 5 or at the risk of offending Sean, Howie Kendrick in 2019 World Series Game 7. I'm talking, of course, 
about 1999 ALDS Game 5 between the Boston Red Sox and the Cleveland Indians. A tour de force of questionable managerial decisions, frosted tips, and helpless pitchers. Or as I like to call it, turn of the century baseball, baby. A few weeks ago on this podcast, we committed Boston Heresy by speaking of the Buckner game, which, if you're a take artist, was actually the John McNamara game. And if you like baseball and have ever held a Bushwick address, was actually the Calvin Chiraldi game. Well, non-existent tipping pitches, Red Sox fans, prepare for your retribution. You can thank Sean Doolittle. In the interest of time and of not making a Major League Baseball player sit here forever while I read a summary of a Major League Baseball game, I'm going to give you the abridged version of the Spark Notes. You know, like the, the free preview version that gets you a C on the pop quiz. Then we're going to get into some questions and some observations about the game. We have come to Game 5 of the ALDS, where the Red Sox have their first legitimate chance to win a playoff series since 1986. Before this series, they'd lost 18 of their last 19 playoff games. If you put the 1962 Mets in the playoffs, I'm not sure that they'd lose 18 of 19 games. But hey, dream big when you trade away Babe Ruth, you know? On the mound for Cleveland, we have Charlie Nagy, who apparently won 15 games for each of his last five years. There's genuinely no point in me trying to pretend like I know the good pitchers from before 2002, because he was apparently good and I have never heard of him. He's going up against Red Sox's typically reliable, but now ailing number two guy, Brett Saberhagen. Now, guys, normally what I would do is give a meandering summary of all the scoring in the tense moments, or as I kept repeating last week for some reason on the podcast, that Alex so much that Alex made it the damn title of the episode, the moments before the moments. <laughs> but Sean might be back in training camp before I make it through a play-by-play summary of all the scoring in this game. So here are the ones that you should know before we talk about Pedro goddamn Martinez. Nomar. It's a two-run home run in the top of the first. Two-nothing Red Sox. Mr. Incredible doppelganger Jim Tomey hits a home run derby-length bomb in the bottom of the first. 477 feet, they said, on the broadcast. On the outer half of the plate. Sean, real quick, window inside. Let's let's take an aside here. What do you... How mad are you if you put that pitch that far outside and he still hits it 477? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I mean, running away from him, too... Like it, it was probably white line away in the right-handed batter's box. And, uh, Tommy, um, I'm watching this game a little bit like a pitcher and I'm thinking like, don't let Tommy get extended. And he just, he's full extension at contact point. I mean, his, and he's so strong. I don't know how on a chilly night in, in Cleveland, he puts that ball 477 feet. Um, it, I don't know, man. I, he was that strong. Yeah. Also, if I mean the the ball Nomar hits out in the first inning was not a good pitch either. Yeah. That was probably uh, a, maybe a ball off the plate away as well. Uh, these guys are looking super comfortable in the box. They're kind of hanging out over the plate. Uh, just for context, Tommy's home run where it, it goes just to the right center side of of center field and. The way that uh, progressive field is set up now, it would have gone over both of the bullpens that are set up. Uh, they now have Jesus. behind the wall, and it almost it almost goes on to the concourse. Um, so it was uh, uh, like four seventy seven. I mean, it might have been farther than that. I really don't know, but like you can yeah, just I don't see trust s- that ball tracking technology from nineteen yeah nineteen ninety nine. No way. They just had a dude run out there to center field and be like, "Yeah, this looks pretty far." <laughs> Oh my gosh, man. Uh, and, and so like you just see the reaction of 
Saber Hagen and you're like, oh man, that's a no doubter. And then like you look where the camera goes and it was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, for context, so the Red this Sox, game gets off to a wild start right off the bat. The Red Sox had scored nine runs in game three, which like that's a normal baseball score. They dropped 23 in game four and then they ended up going going on to score 12 in this game, eight in the first three innings. All right, back into the back into the box score, the scoring plays. Travis Fryman hits a wall scraper in the bottom of the second. It goes over the fence after an umpire conversation. It's now five to two Cleveland. Sneaky MVP of the game, Troy O'Leary, hits a grand slam in the top of the third to put the Red Sox up seven five. Manny Ramirez doubles in Roberto Alomar in the bottom of the third before Tommy goes yard again, this time to straightaway center on full extension, like you mentioned last time, to make it eight seven Cleveland. John Valentin. Jersey boy. (laughs) (laughs) He of seven RBI fame in game four. Hits a sack fly in the top of the fourth to tie the game 8-8. Tough tough beat for John Valentin, who set the record for most RBIs in game four. And then in the very next game, his teammate's like, all right, I'm just going to tie that. Yeah, I got you. So we're going to go in there together, bro. (laughs) (laughs) And then, like a fire safety blanket smothering the Indians, flickering hopes, enter Pedro. The Red Sox would tack on four more runs over the course of the next six innings. Another Troy O'Leary home run, this time for only three RBIs. Jeez. And a Nomar double on the only time they didn't intentionally walk him outside of his home run in the first. But Pedro endures. Pedro endures despite taking the mound for the first time since game one of the series, where he left after three innings with a back injury. Pedro endures despite sitting just 91 or 90 and relying heavily on his changeup and Houdini curveball. Pedro endures despite coming into this game, one, as a reliever, and two, in the fourth inning, Pedro endures to the bitter end of Cleveland's season through four walks, but more importantly, not a single hit. That's right, not one hit through six innings of work and relief as the Red Sox would go on to win the game 12-8 and the series 3-2, their first series win since that little old snafu in Queens in 1986. So guys, we talked up top about our relationship to Pedro and why Sean threw this game out for the podcast. In a game with 20 runs and lineups littered with Hall of Famers, 20 years later, it almost feels as if the events of this game are nothing more than baseball genuflecting to Pedro's greatness. I'm hoping you can start us off here, Sean. I left a lot of stuff out of this summary. Can you tell me what pops up the most? What you're most frustrated that I didn't throw into this abridged version of my SparkNotes summary? Um, there's nothing that I was that I was frustrated that you left out. I, I right off the bat, like uh, when I was watching the game. Um, there were a few things that jumped out. One was the strike zone. Goodness gracious. It was, it was really wide and maybe a little erratic, but as a pitcher, I would love to pitch with that strike zone. I don't know if that's what it was like in 1999, but that was, that was awesome. Um, the other thing is like, just how far we've come, maybe like, uh, as a sport or society, these guys are out here wearing like cotton t-shirts under their uniforms. Okay. They got bacon neck They're, I mean, it, it, they, they look like, like a, like a high school team. And these guys are put, like you said, you know, bashing home runs and, and, uh, you know, trying to get to the, to the ALCS. Um, but like you mentioned the two Troy O'Leary home runs in both scenarios, they intentionally walked Nomar to face Troy O'Leary. And this was Troy O'Leary's best season uh, in the league. He, he hit, uh, you know, he played 11 years in the league. uh, This was probably his best season. He hits 280 
with 28 homers and 103 runs driven in. But like they walk him, they walk Nomar. You know, Nomar hits the home run in the first, and I guess they basically decide they don't want any part of him for the rest of the game. They said, this is the guy that's not going to beat us. They intentionally walk him to face Troy O'Leary uh, to load the bases. He hits a grand slam. Later in the seventh, uh, in a tie ball game when it's 8-8, eight, eight, uh, I believe there's two outs and a runner on second. So they walk Nomar first and second, and uh, O'Leary hits the first pitch for a home run. Uh, that kind of gets lost in the heroics uh, of Pedro. Um, but, uh, I mean, like you said, uh, two home runs, uh, seven RBIs, um, absolutely just like heroic playoff stuff here. One other thing that I thought, like right off the bat, top of the first, uh, Nagy gets the first two guys out pretty easily. Uh, shout out to Brian Dahlbeck, uh, Washington Nationals um, hitting coach minor league hitting coach um he sneaks a ground ball single through the right side and like as i'm watching the game and he makes contact and the the camera angle changes to show the fielders and there's no shift there i'm like how does this ball get through (laughs) (laughs) it it must have like he didn't hit it hard he didn't hit it hard it probably bounced like 63 times before it gets through the infield and there was just like Alomar doesn't even come close to it. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is so different right <laughs> off the bat. God, Alomar's play in this game or his plays just in general, stunning oh stuff. I mean, yeah. for, literally from, I think the very, like the first or second inning, right. He like makes that play where he ranges deep in the hole and like makes the off balance bounce throw to first. And I'm just like, geez. And then he does it like twice more yeah. in the game. Yeah, straight up three web gems in this game. Yeah. Also, that first inning that you mentioned, Sean, the first three batters, they all swung at the first pitch, all three of them, which I guess oh. like, if, if you're coming off a game, if you're coming off two straight games, where you put up 32 runs combined and you're trying to jump out to a lead um, for your starter who you know is having some shoulder issues. Right. I, I guess like it makes sense and, and they're feeling hot and they're, they're, they're excited. But first pitch swinging against a, a pitcher who's having a good year and in front of his home crowd, you probably want to run him and run up his pitch count as much as possible because they mentioned on the broadcast a few times that the Cleveland bullpen was like, not reliable it was probably the weakest part of the team i don't know it was just wild to me that they all came out first pitch swinging and then that that dribble or single getting through was the reason that it wasn't like a three pitch inning it's almost like they they set that tone or like announced their presence like hey we're gonna be aggressive they scored 23 runs in game four so you're right they were probably feeling it feeling themselves a little bit naggy uh as good as he was he was an all-star in 1999 um, and one of the better pitchers, uh, of the late nineties, um, he wasn't like an overpowering guy. He's a sinker ball guy, pitched to contact, very 1990s style of pitching. And, um, it, it just seemed like they were just going to come out swinging it and try to try to get into that bullpen. Uh, because like you said, it wasn't exactly a strength for them, but also they did have a number of injuries to where they weren't really sure how they were going to piece it together. So the Indians were probably banking on Nagy going at least sick and, uh, you know, ultimately them out, uh, in the, after, uh, in the, in the fourth inning, he faces one batter in the fourth inning and, and he's done. <laughs> not great. Not what you wanted. If you're the, if you're the Indians manager there. Um, 
can we talk can we talk about the the broadcast for a second or at the very <laughs> least the the specific broadcast that was uploaded to MLB Vault yes because this is the this is the 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 video is the Fox National Broadcast but the audio is the Indians radio station and yeah. that's like very clear from the outset because like they're calling all the Indians players with like nicknames yeah. and they refer to them as just like the tribe throughout the game, which is a whole other can of worms. <laughs> but like, it's just, it's very jarring. Like I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm like, God help me. If I tell, if I say out loud that I miss Joe Buck during this game, like, is that, <laughs> is that blasphemy? Like, is God going to smite me down right now? <laughs> Well, I in the bottom of the ninth, or sorry, yeah, in the top yeah, of the ninth, the archive footage is just missing. Yeah, Jason, just and it says Jason, Jason Veritek Bar- grounds out, and I'm like, what are they trying to hide? I'm going all like Area 51. They just cut the footage out of this video. Literally, on you MLB have, Vault. You, you have entire games from before this. Like, what what did this tape go through to get uploaded to YouTube? That's what I'm I just imagining. Know. Yeah, I'm just imagining like yeah. Fifth Ave in Manhattan. Like somebody just like stepped on the last v- VCR tape and it just like yeah. broke. <laughs> and because there's no like, it is the Fox National feed, but it also must. It, that's not that couldn't have been what they aired like on no. TV because no, no, they no. were. There were no replays of anything. There were no replays. Like, there were no graphics on screen ever. Right, right. So that was weird for me, uh, a millennial, not having the ball strike, like the little bug in the top of the screen. But like, there's one point, um, I believe it's Tommy's second at bat, where he swings through He, he swings through a pitch. It's strike three. Veritek run. The ball goes, it's a fastball, like on the inner half of the plate. Uh, Tommy swings and misses. Um, Veritek misses the ball and the ball goes all the way back to the backstop and Tommy's just kind of standing there. Veritek comes back, tags him out. The umpire never gives a signal at any point during any of this. And like, finally, he's just like, yep, you're out. And Tommy like looks at him like, I foul tipped it. And Veritek's like, no, you didn't. You're out. And <laughs> Tommy just kind of like looks at the umpire and like says maybe one thing and walks back to, to the dugout. And I'm thinking in my 2019 baseball brain is like, how do you not look at this for like five minutes and figure out if Tommy tipped this pitch or not? Yeah. And this is like a crucial point in the game. There was a runner on base um, and Tommy like we're just the umpires are just like ah no you're out and like that's the end of it there's no more arguing there were a couple of other plays like this like travis fryman's home run you mentioned the wall scraper like it hits the railing just above the top of the tall fence in left field bounces back into play the red sox play it like it's a double or like it hit the wall and fryman stops a second and like the umpires get together they talk about it but like without replay you just like it, it's so uh, different how like the umpires they get together they do talk about it they did get it right they obviously they did get it right it was a home run but it's like it's like man like there was a time where like the umpires made a call and like you just lived with it like <laughs> <laughs> but at, at the end of it you were like there's really no point like they're not going to change it so it's like uh, there's a close play uh, like with uh, Kenny Lofton at first base unfortunately. Yeah. Um, where Kenny Lofton, I believe it was the fifth inning, he hits an, a ground ball uh, toward to the right side of the infield and tries to beat Pedro to the bag who's covering from the mound and slides in head first, 
ultimately injures his shoulder, but like, that's a bang, bang play. And it, I mean, I was like, this would have gotten reviewed for sure in 2019 and there's no review. Obviously everybody is, a, is attending to, to Lofton who's on the ground by first base kind of writhing in pain. And unfortunately, as we, you know, we talked about, uh, we exchanged messages before this about how much fun Kenny Lofton was to watch play. Um, you know, this, that was like a big, probably morale uh, or momentum changer in, in this game. You lose Kenny Lofton, who hit Pedro really well over the course of his career. He slides, he tries to dive head first into first base, injures his shoulder. It ended up being like a, a really serious injury. Even if the Indians did advance, he would not have been able to play the rest of the season. He ended up getting surgery and missed half of, of the next season with this injury. So, um, but I don't know, like just just seeing the the difference in um, you know, the way technology, I guess, has come into our game, um, was, was very apparent from, from the very beginning. I, I just don't know what there is to lose by putting up the score in the count. Like Alex texted me while we were both watching this game and he was like, it's really fucking pissing me off. That I can't <laughs> see the score. He's like, I just don't know the count. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not like the broadcasters are doing a great job of being like, all right, two, one, you know, the score is eight to eight. Like, I didn't even know that the score was eight to eight or seven there was at one point where it was like seven five and i thought it was like four to two you know like there's just so many runs and so much happens so fast that i just didn't know the score and there was nothing to remind me i i am really curious about how the decision was made to like kind of craft this package to put it together because even in past games that we've watched right i mean like they used to not have the score or the balls and counts on the screen all the time. And that's fine. And they would like, you know, flash it at the beginning of the at bat or whatever, but there's like none of this ever. And so, yeah, it is, it's very jarring at times. It's, it's also really unfortunate that like there was no replay on this broadcast because that just meant that we were just like on the one shot of Kenny Lofton, just laying face down on the ground for yeah. like eight yeah. straight minutes. And I was like, yeah. I, and I I have dislocated my left shoulder twice, and so watching him in that much pain was like specifically very visceral for me. And I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the other room for a little bit until he was this, trying until to pop it back in. Yeah, I know. I know. He grabs his he grabs his left arm by the wrist with his right hand, and you can see mm-hmm. him tugging on his arm, yeah, trying to pop it back in. Uh, but it, uh, one uh, he he messed up a bunch of stuff in that shoulder. One of it one of the issues was that he tore his rotator cuff, um, which like. I don't care what you do with your shoulder. You could pop it back in, but that's not going to fix your rotator cuff. Um, I've, I've tried. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, but like you're talking about like with no, with no score, with no count and ultimately with no radar gun reading on the screen when you're watching, especially in those early innings where, um, you have like sinker ball guys like Nagy like low it's really difficult to see which what pitches they're throwing the differentiating between their sinker and a changeup i think one of one of the balls that tommy demolished was a changeup but i can't tell for sure um but like so that was like a little bit frustrating for me like i'm trying to watch this game like a pitcher and think through like the sequences that they're throwing these guys but i can't really tell what the pitches are because i don't have the velocity reading so that was like a little annoying obviously pedro stuff kind of speaks for itself you can he's making the ball do a, a crazy crazy stuff but like i also felt really bad for saberhagen because you could tell 
he wasn't he wasn't right like he's trying to grind it out for for the boys and hope that he can you know get it get into the game get past a few innings maybe hand it over to low i don't that might have been the plan from the beginning of the game but like um if we could have a a brett saberhagen appreciation moment for a second yes i pulled something from his wikipedia too so go ahead and then I'll, i'll read this off i mean this guy won He's 21 years old, okay? Didn't make the all-star team, but won the Cy Young that year. So that's pretty weird, um, but also awesome because he he absolutely deserved to win the Cy Young. He won 20 games, had a sub-3 ERA. Um, but he goes on to have a borderline Hall of Fame career. And it, uh, unfortunately, he did have some injuries over the course of his career, which kept him from uh, making uh, a full season's worth of starts in probably shoot six or seven seasons unfortunately but this 1999 season he does he stay healthy enough to make 22 starts has a sub three era um and when he was on the field um this season he was really good for the red sox um and and so he's he's trying to gut it out uh, but they're talking about it on the broadcast and it was talked a lot about before this game that he's not right like he's not healthy he looks like he's trying to protect his shoulder a little bit, or he doesn't fully trust it, and he might be aiming something, aiming the ball a little bit. Um, but like Pedro said after the game, that seeing Saberhagen go out there and try to gut this thing out is what made him go down to the bullpen in the third inning and tell Jimmy Williams, "Hey, I'm going to the bullpen. I'm going to see what I got." And Jimmy Williams was like, "No." if you pitch tonight, it's going to be at the end of the game. You're going to try to close it out. And he was like, no, I have to go right now. Like Saberhagen's out there. He's grinding it out for the boys. He's putting it on the line. Saberhagen didn't pitch in the year 2000, the the following season, probably because of what was going on in his shoulder um, around this time. But uh, Pedro was like, I'm seeing this guy try to try to gut this thing out. So I'm going to I'm going to do the same thing. Um, and, and Pedro said that was a big reason why he went down to the bullpen. Yeah, they the broadcast, we've we've dumped on it a little bit. But uh, I think in the first or second inning when Saberhagen is struggling, they cut to Pedro in the dugout and he's just like sitting there pretty calm. And then the camera like aggressively and dramatically pans down to his shoes and you see that he's wearing his spikes and it's like the announcers don't even comment on it because at this point we still have the Indians announcers. The announcers changed halfway through this MLB vault broadcast, but that's a different story. But the (laughs) announcers don't even comment on the fact that he's wearing his spikes and how that kind of indicates that he is ready to go if they absolutely need him. And little did we know or little did 1999 know. I mean, we knew watching this game yesterday. But little did 1999 know that that would be a sort of precursor to him coming in and shutting this game down, that he was sort of this looming big figure. But yeah, Saberhagen, I feel bad for him as well. But aside from all of that, feeling bad for him in this game, I want to read you this, the last paragraph of Brett Saberhagen's Wikipedia. Brett Saberhagen at one time opened and operated a sports entertainment facility featuring major league caliber indoor batting cages pitching mounds, bowling, laser tag, and arcade games. The 30,000-square-foot sports center (laughs) was located at 580 Montauk Highway in West Babylon, New York, near Saberhagen's Babylon, New York estate. The facility's facade was shaped like Ebbets Field, the home of the Brooklyn Dodgers, and designed by Stephen Ray Fellman of Amityville, New York. There's already a lot to unpack here. It was called... Brett Saberhagen's hit and fun. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Is there going to be a Sean Doolittle's hit and fun coming up anytime oh. <laughs> after your career? Um, that's the dream, right? <laughs> win a couple sides, win the World Series. You know, he's a World Series MVP. Um, and then, uh, you know, maybe stick around. You, you pitch 16 seasons in the show, and then you open a hit and fun. I mean... <laughs> What what more is there? That's the dream. A 30,000 30, square foot indoor like arcade. That's like some Richie Rich stuff. That's like some blank check stuff. Like I don't know if you guys remember those movies, but like that is some extremely I don't know, that is just so 90s or I guess it would have been 2000s by this point, but that's awesome. Honestly, it is awesome, right? It's like most most baseball players at this point like at this point in being the nineties or whatever, like they retire and they just like do nothing for the rest of their lives or they get into like real estate investment or something like that. Like right, these very right. like, like mundane, like let me be like financially responsible. Yeah, and your like, money no, manager I t- told you to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to read actually a, a different line from Brett Saberhagen's Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the, that's the line that mentions the time when he was on the Mets and got in trouble for um, having a squirt gun filled with bleach and squirting it at reporters oh in the clubhouse. Dude. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even oh. see that one. Yeah. I was just scrolling the, the the headlines, you know, and I saw Hit and Fun, and I was like, oh, I'd like to hit and have fun. <laughs> Apparently, what? he threw firecrackers at them once in the clubhouse as well. I'm like, my guy. I mean... Oh my God! What is going on? Antagonistic Brett. relationship for sure. Brett, come on, tipping pitches, Brett. He pitched well in New York too. I'm looking at the three years he spent in New York. Like he did battle some injuries, but he was he was a good. He pitched really well for the Mets. Yeah, he was an All Star in '94. I don't know what the relationship was like that he felt like he had to shoot them with bleach. I mean, you know, you know New York media, you get it, right? They're like, tough. Maybe <laughs> They're tough. Um, also, also, I'm looking at this. This the other year he won the Cy Young in '89. He also did not make the All Star team. What are people? What were Jesus people in Christ. the '80s doing? <laughs> where he wins two Cy Youngs, and in both his Cy Young campaigns, he do- he wins. He does not make the All Star team. What is going on there? He 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 was named to three All Star teams, but the two years he won the Cy Young, he did not make the All Star team. That's bizarre. <laughs> I, this just goes back so, to like like all right so i get it i get the bleach gun now <laughs> <laughs> and I you mean, know voting was crazy back then because like you go back <laughs> you watch like ken griffey or or you watch um you know you watch whoever in this game and it's like pedro didn't win the cy young this or pedro didn't win the mvp this year and you go back and you look who won and it's like ivan rodriguez and you're like all right he was great but like was he really more valuable than like Manny Ramirez? Who, Sean, you oh. have his line in front of you. You you DM'd it to you to us, and you were just like, ha 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 ha. Like, how the fuck are you supposed to get this guy out? They they even like allude to Pedro potentially winning the MVP on the broadcast, and one of the broadcasters is like, "Yeah, Cy Young hands down," and the other guy is like, "Oh, absolutely, he's got it in the bag." And the first broadcaster's right. like, he could win MVP. And the other guy's like, no Fuck fucking that. way. Yes. No way. I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> he said, I'm really against having pitchers winning the MVP. And I'm like, okay, first of all, guy, that's a take. Second of all, like he had, he had a case 
for it in, in 1999. But, you know, looking at, at Manny's uh, 1999 numbers where he goes off to the tune of 333 batting average, on-base 442, slug. He, his, o, his OPS is, is 11.05. <laughs> For an OPS plus of 174, those that leads the league. He drives in 165 runs, um, casual, 44 homers. His WAR checks in. Not that WAR is perfect, but just to give you an idea, WAR checks in at at 7.3. Pudge's WAR that year was 6.4. He did hit 332 with 35 homers and 113 RBIs, but. As good as he was, Manny's OPS was was a hundred points higher. His slugging percentage was a hundred points higher. His on base percentage was ninety points higher. Um, Pudge is playing a premium position, playing behind the plate. I mean, I don't know, but like the fact that in nineteen ninety nine, the fact that forty four and one hundred and sixty five while hitting three thirty three doesn't get you the MVP is just awesome. Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah, I know. And and Manny is like, I mean, yeah, case to be made that he's the best player in this lineup. But also, there are a handful of guys who that can we just run down like the list of oh, names yeah, yeah, playing yeah, yeah. for the Indians? It goes. Let's just read the whole lineups of both yes, teams. I have yeah, them both written down yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. The Indians lineup is Kenny Lofton, Omar Vizquel, Roberto Alomar, Manny Ramirez, Jim Tomey, Harold Baines. Will Cordero, Sam, uh, Travis Fryman, Sandy Alomar. The first six guys, three of them are Hall of Famers, and three of them have cases to be Hall of Famers. And I, and Manny and Omar very well could end up in the Hall of Fame. That's just, that's insane. Like how this, this was the first team since like the 30s to score a thousand runs in a season, and no one has done it since either. I mean, this, this offense wow. was lethal. I mean, and you also have David Justice and Richie Sexton on the bench. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know how they shook their lineup out. Uh, Harold Baines was the primary DH, and obviously with Jim Tomey playing first, there weren't a ton of at bats to go around. But um, I mean, Richie Sexton was a guy, okay. And <laughs> David Justice obviously is David Justice. I think Justice got hurt towards the yeah. end of the season yeah, and wasn't a hundred, wasn't a hundred percent. That lineup is. <laughs> unbelievable oh i had this question written down who did so you come in for the save bottom of the ninth sean doolittle the closer is speaking now who does he want to face least from these two teams good god from these two teams yeah so we that, uh, that can include the boston lineup which goes jose offerman john valentin brian daubach nomar garcia para troy o'leary mike stanley jason veritek darren lewis and trot nixon christopher trotman nixon what a name Great what name. a name. <laughs> Turned down a football scholarship at NC State, baby. Uh, who do I least want to face? I mean, geez, Louise. Um, I was going to say Nomar. Um, I want no part, though, of... I mean, I'm looking at this Indians lineup. <laughs> Alomar, Ramirez, Tommy. Baines right in a row. I mean, Vizquel was not was not fun to face either because of his bat to ball skills. Um, uh, and Kenny Lofton is a problem. I, I honestly don't know. I, Nomar maybe the matchup is exponentially worse because he's right handed and he hits fastball so well. Um, but Manny at that 
at that point in his career, uh, that's 27 year old Manny. Uh, I don't want, I don't want any part of that. (laughs) Jeez. I don't know. That's you're uh, going through like an existential crisis, like trying to think (laughs) about what it would be like if you were in your prime in 1999. At least I do have that strike zone to work with. Um, (laughs) Yeah. If you think this strike zone was bad, you should have seen when we were watching 1986, man. Oh, really? Oh my, it was so, it was like a good, good foot outside to left-handed hitters. There were several calls. I was watching this game, just so you guys know where I was at, when I was mentally, where I was watching this game. And there were several pitches that were made during the course of the game where I like threw my hands up and like made a noise. Like I probably huffed or like, I was like, come on. And my wife is like, she like looked at me like, what is going on? Like she thought like, I don't know there were, I got like a push notification about like what is going on in the world right now or something, I think. Uh, and I'm like this umpire, he's this, I don't know what's going on with this strike zone. And she's like, geez, like, don't scare me like that. Like, <laughs> I'm like, no, you don't understand how bad this is. I can't like, come figure watch out this pitch. Come watch this pitch. Aaron, I can't figure out the strike zone from this game in 1999. And it's driving me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of that's kind of a nice thing to be driven crazy about right now. You know, I there, know, it feels there right. are lots of things to actually be like oh, I, genuinely yes, yes. Up, upset about yes. and to just like like even just the the yes. opportunity to scroll baseball reference as if I was like watching this game in real time and just gawk at Pedro's numbers yes. was like such a such a reprieve. Can we jump back for a sec to Kenny Lofton because we talked about his injury? I want to talk about Lofton and like this archetype of the long, lanky, super athletic outfielder that also had some pop. I feel like this is sort of a lost archetype. Like I'm thinking of Kenny Lofton and Daryl Strawberry and even early career Ken Griffey Jr. and early career Barry Bonds. But I can't think of a guy right now who, who looks like that and plays that way. I feel like a lot more guys try to emulate like a stronger, thicker build like Mike Trout style than than rather than like this skinny athletic right and strong lanky guy I, i'm the only guy that's coming to mind is maybe christian yelich but wh- what's going on there why have we lost that archetype i feel like that's such a strong archetype going back through baseball history i don't know i i think a big part of it probably is is the way the game has shifted towards the home run um kenny lofton was so good because of the way that he used his skill set um he stayed on top of the ball so well Um, he did, you know, he had a handful of seasons where he had double digit homers, but for the most part, um, like his high was 15. So it was there, but like, then you go down his on base percentage. I mean, he's getting on base, um, you know, close to at a close to a 400 clip for most of his career. And he ends, you know, over 17 seasons, his on base percentage was 372. So like he's using his speed, he's using, uh, you know, he's on top of the dish, He's on top of the ball. He's working down through it, which we don't see a lot of anymore. Um, he's six foot. He's listed at six foot one eighty. So like he's uh, like in modern times, like his build is like. I'm trying to think of a of someone like him. Maybe like a um, like I mean, Yelich is way bigger than that. I was thinking like. You know, he he kind of reminds me of Victor Robles, actually, in kind of in kind of that like okay. blend, blend of pop and speed, and like like not super like built, but like very agile. Yeah, and I was thinking like 
right out of the shoot, right out of the shoot in this game in the bottom of the first, he draws a leadoff walk from Saber Hagen. And I don't know if you guys saw the bat flip that he does on this walk. <laughs> no, I missed like, it. None of these pitches were even close. It's not like he, he walks on five pitches, I think. And he just kind of really like emphatically flips the bat down right on top of home plate, undoes the batting gloves and like heads towards first. And I'm like, I'm like, yes, this guy is, he's got, he's got swag. He's, he's like, he's playing with energy. I love it. The must win game, game five. And here he is bat flipping a walk to start, (laughs) to start things off here in the first inning. And so to me, like in my head, I was like, when people talk about like, you know, respecting the game and that's not how we used to do it. Yes, it was like, there were guys that were doing these things back in the day. Like when I was growing up, my generation saw this swag and we loved it. Like Kenny Lofton is like this universally respected favorite and he played with that kind of energy and that kind of swag. And he played with maybe a chip on his shoulder. He was getting under your skin if you were on the other team. And right out of the gate, he bat flips a walk. And I'm like, yes, let's go. And like, I wanted him to like steal second and third and home. (laughs) Uh, He leads the league. He ends up leading the league in, in ends up leading the league in stolen bases five times in his career. He's a, he's a six-time all-star. His peak, like, we were, te- we were messaging back and forth about this. Like, according to Jaws, like, his peak is borderline Hall of Fame worthy. Like, he, I mean, there's a case to be made here for him being in the Hall of Fame. He, he might fall just short. Career war is 68.4. Um, he does, he finishes with 2,400 hits. Uh, he finishes with over 600 stolen bases. I mean, he was... He was a problem. Like he was a guy. He wins one, two, three, four gold gloves over yeah, the course of his he was career. An insane defender. He almost robbed uh, the, he home, almost run, robbed the, the home, home run. The no more Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was. I oh, part of me was like, I've I've seen Kenny Lofton make this catch before. What if we just copy pasted that catch onto this game? You know. <laughs> yeah. It's it's iconic. Like he he was like he was he was so much fun to watch. The, the, these this. His career, especially, you know, vintage Lofton, late '90s, early 2000s, like, uh, I mean, he was he was so much fun to watch, and that and like, that's another reason why I picked this game. Like, there are so many players in this game on both sides that when I was a kid and I was you know collecting baseball cards or I was playing Ken Griffey Jr. baseball on Super Nintendo, like, uh, or I was just watching highlights on SportsCenter, like there are so many guys in this game that are such a big reason why I fell in love with the game. He's absolutely one of those guys for me. Alex, you want to talk about how we fell in love with the game because we played with Kenny Lofton in backyard baseball? <laughs> yes, literally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was I mean it, players like him were like the perfect um kind of analog to translate into like video games because you felt like you could kind of like have a little bit of that swagger too, right? You can play as Ken Griffey Jr. with the backwards cap. And that's like it's great. And 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 yeah, Sean, something you said about how like players have always kind of like quote unquote done this like disrespecting of the game or whatever. Like they've Babe Ruth calling his shot is maybe the <laughs> most disrespectful thing a baseball player has ever done in the history of the ball game. <laughs> Hands down. Give me a break. <laughs> it's an absolutely fantastic point. <laughs> 
Oh my god! Like, dude would get dude would get beamed repeatedly for doing that if he did it. In Absolutely. Oh Except he was god. also the pitcher too, so he could bean everyone else on restitution <laughs> himself. So you don't want to bean that dude. He called his shot. Oh my gosh! You, no, you're supposed to walk up to the plate with your head down, not make eye contact with the pitcher. Don't call your shot. <laughs> Talk about pitching with emotion, too, though. I mean, this was sort of an unfortunate um, coincidence that Lofton also got injured on this play. But on the play that Pedro's covering first, Pedro beats him there by maybe like a, like a millisecond. And yeah. th- he turns to the ump. The ump calls him out. And Pedro kind of like fist bumps over top of him, almost like yeah. when an NBA player dunks on yeah. another player like and steps yes. over him or the Iverson crossover yes. on Ty Lue. And Pedro oh, kind of yes. does that over top of him. And I was like, holy shit. Did Pedro just talk shit to Kenny Lofton right there? Yeah. That he beat him to beat him to the bag. Pedro, who is known to be like not that I big, think he did. Not that fast, not that athletic. I think he kind of talked shit to him right there. And it sucked that Lofton got injured on that play. Who he, he was like, they said it on the broadcast that he didn't slide into first often like that. Probably because he didn't need to, because he was just beating every play out. But I, I was right. like, damn, Pedro, all right. I see you, dude. I see you. Yeah, I think he does have something to say right there to Kenny Lofton. Um, and then, but uh, to be fair to Pedro, uh, when Kenny Lofton is being helped off the field uh, and he crosses between the mound and home plate on the way back to the Indians dugout on the third base side, Pedro does come up to him and say something and give him a pat on the back. Um, almost, you know, and, and it just kind of reminds you that like, even in the, even in the most uh, intense moments, Pedro loved nothing more than just the competition of that moment. And, and yeah, he probably did get caught up in that bang bang play at first. And he probably did say something to him, but it wasn't personal. It wasn't malicious. And, and when Kenny often is being helped off, he does go over, say something to him. It, it almost looks like he, you know, uh, wishes him well. And, and, um, you know, um, so that it was nice to see, you know, in a span of you know, a couple minutes, both sides of, of Pedro right there. Well, that, that's kind of the essence of Pedro. Like, that's the duality of Pedro, the performative competitor and him being incredible on the field, obviously, and, and talking shit and pitching with emotion and all, all of that good stuff that we love about Pedro. But also, like, I think of him coming out to the media when, when the Yankees walloped him and saying, the Yankees are my daddy today. You know, like, that's the same thing. We just saw that in, an, in a shortened, smaller right. version with Kenny Lofton right there. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I think that's perfect. Like, Pedro... He always he relished those moments, and he I think more so guys. You could see how much fun he had competing, playing the game. He would talk some trash. He would show emotion a little bit on the mound. Um, um, I'm thinking about that uh, another game from I think it was '99 where he strikes out 17 rays at uh, at Fenway Park, and and they ended up losing that game one nothing, which kind of gets lost it in in the highlights of, of that, of that pitching performance. But like he's, I mean, he's staring guys down. Uh, he had some histories with the Rays. It's fair to say uh, during those, during those years. But um, Sean, if, if Max Scherzer strikes out 17 and gives up one run and comes back into the dugout in the ninth and you guys haven't put up one more run for him, what is Max Scherzer saying to you guys? I don't think he's saying anything. I don't, to be honest, to be honest, I really don't know. I I also have a theory where it comes to Max and his strikeouts that the feeling that night and the more strikeouts he's racking up, 
um, you know, when Max gets a strikeout and there's nobody on base, how he, he, um, he kind of stalks around the mound. Um, he does like this walk where, uh, he walks towards first base and, and starts to make like a big circle around the mound <laughs> as the infielders are throwing the ball around. Um, and as the, the more strikeouts he gets and the more swaggy he's feeling that day, that, that walk starts to get bigger and bigger. <laughs> and he, and he almost reaches, he almost starts to, he almost reaches the infield dirt sometimes when Jesus. he's feeling, when he's feeling really <laughs> sexy. So I was looking for it like a couple of weeks ago, ESPN had on uh, his 20 strikeout game. I think it was from 2016. Um, and I, I was, ju- I was waiting for him to just like be taking laps around the warning track of the whole field, like by <laughs> It would be a hilarious bit. Um, so, Max, if you're listening, I want you to circle the mound after a strikeout and go all the way into the outfield. I think that would be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk about one thing regarding this game that actually has nothing to do with the baseball that was played on the field. And that's in reference to literally the only graphic we ever get on screen in this game, which is a brief, uh, one of those little uh, banner ads at the bottom of the screen in the seventh or eighth inning for TV shows as yes! as uh, as old games are wont to do. This is my favorite thing when I, when I watch these games is going back and seeing what awful TV shows like Fox was trying to promote really hard at the time. Yes. <laughs> and, and the two shows are uh, are harsh realm, <laughs> which is which is like a sci-fi show made by I think like the X-Files producers and it lasts for like a season. I'm putting and the X-Files music there by the way. <laughs> and the other one is called Ryan Caulfield Year 1. And it's about like a, a teenage cop and his first year on the job. Do you guys do you guys know how long this show lasted? No. Do you want to do you want to guess? One episode. Six episodes. Two episodes. It made it it made its <laughs> debut October 15th and its last episode aired October 22nd. <laughs> oh my gosh. I I actually I want to read you guys the the first paragraph from a review of this from the Chicago Tribune. This is by okay. Steve Steve Johnson. He goes Ryan Caulfield year 1. Here's a challenge. Watch Friday's debut of this cop of this Fox Cop series. And an hour later, tell me anything that happened after the amusing Keanu Reeves impersonations in the first scene. This coming of age in blue tale is, in its best moments, a shrug of a show, as forgettable as the first name of that guy you met at the thing. In its worst, it plays like a parody, a mad TV melding of the conventions of NYPD Blue and teen drama, Dawson's Badge. Wow. Steve Johnson goes in on Ryan Caulfield year one. What a bad name for a show. I know. Yeah, right? What are they um, going to do if it gets renewed? Rename the show to Ryan Caulfield Year 2? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, okay. We're we're approaching the hour mark or we just crossed the hour mark depending on how how when we actually started, but um what is left from this game, guys? Dump the notebooks, dump the observations, everything, all the questions and everything. What did we miss? What have we not talked about yet? Uh, we haven't talked about how Pedro used to cut the sleeves of his jerseys. Um, I don't know if you guys caught this, but for me, uh, 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 when I was watching Pedro during this time, that was one of my favorite things about him. Uh, um, it's hard to describe, but he would take the in the the sleeve of his jerseys. He would take the 
the inseam that kind of runs uh, up the inner bicep towards the armpit and he would cut it along that seam so his sleeves would flare um and so he uh, presumably could get a little bit more whip on his pitches but uh i i seeing that i thought was uh just kind of took me back a little bit does that does that mean we should expect to see flared sleeves on you when you make your eventual return to the mound Oh, I can't pull it off. Uh, I, I can't pull it off. But that was part of Pedro's thing, right? He was he was this smaller dude, skinny, slighter build. And, you know, he, he always, I don't know if it was like a flex or if it made him feel like he had better, uh, um, he could move his arm better or something. I don't really know. But it was, it was like a, a subtle thing that was like one of his trademarks that I always remembered seeing when he was pitching during this era. But um, I would like to get into a little bit more about like actually like Pedro's pitching performance yeah. during these six innings. Yeah. yeah. Go off. Let's do it. Break it, break it down. <laughs> because, because Alex, like you mentioned, this Indians lineup led the league in runs scored and put up, uh, they were either first or second in like every, uh, category, like, um, uh, on base percentage and OPS, as a team. Um, so this was like, this was pro in, in 1999, this was the most formidable lineup that you could have assembled that, that most formidable lineup that was in the playoffs. And Pedro comes out for game five. He comes out in the fourth inning after, um, you know, Bobby, you mentioned this, he pitches four innings in game one and has to leave because he's got discomfort in the back of his shoulder and i've seen doing research i've seen it labeled a back injury and i've seen it labeled a shoulder injury but it it, it sounds like it was like his lat uh behind his shoulder so you know this was it, back before you actually had to name the injury you could just be like yeah his back hurts <laughs> and yeah and so he comes out for this game and you guys mentioned it he's topping out at 90 91, I think, gets mentioned one time on the broadcast. But Pedro would spend most games 90 in, in the 94 to 97 range uh, during this time period. And he's topping out at 90. So he's pitching completely backwards, throwing mostly change-ups and breaking balls, mixing in occasional cutters into lefties. His arm slot is noticeably lower. Yeah. Like he's he's pushing the ball up to home plate in some cases. And after the game, Pedro, Pedro said, looking back on his career, Pedro said like he put, he, he put his career on the line in this game. Like um, it sounds dramatic, but like he says that like in a very real way, this led to some shoulder issues for him. Um, he probably shouldn't have pitched in this game, let alone through pitch six innings. Uh, Jimmy Williams was kind of banking on him for maybe 20 pitches over the course of maybe two innings at the end of this game, if at all. And he goes out against the best lineup uh, in baseball probably this season, goes six innings, does walk three guys, but punches out eight without his best stuff, kind of just making up new pitch sequences for him as he goes along. Just off and the cuff, like, just making it up. Unbelievable. Yeah. Like, totally like new mechanics, different arm slot because he can't get into his regular mechanics because his shoulder hurts so bad. And, and just pitching completely different than how he pitched at any point 
during the season where he just overpowered guys. And yes, he did have, he had what was considered a power changeup before that was a term like this. It was like 85, his fastball had late life. It had that explosion and ride to it. Um, his changeup has almost a split finger action where it barrels down and in towards right-handed hitters at 84 to 86, sometimes a little bit harder depending on how he wanted to throw it. But like the movement that he got on his pitches was absolutely ridiculous. And even in a game where he's not feeling his best, he still has the hand action to spin the ball and manipulate it so that it's doing, it's still absolutely disgusting. And it, it, it just, it, it blew my mind to watch him work under these conditions, feeling the way that he did. It was absolutely incredible. Yeah. The one thing that stuck out to me too, is that like, the very basics of pitching, other than if you're just throwing a hundred and blowing it by people, the very basics of pitching is what changing eye level, high and low, or working inner inner half or outer half just to keep the batter, you know, on their heels. And there's doing that as a normal pitcher, and then there's doing what Pedro did in this game, which is like sequencing it to the point where the batter has no idea whether it's going to be well outside, a cutter inside, or whether it's just going to be a curveball in the dirt. Like they have no. It just it's shocking to me that they just have no pitch recognition for what he's doing here because whatever they scouted didn't matter because he's not right. throwing 97 on the outer half to blow it by you. Like he probably still would have shut them down if they were this lineup was great and everything and maybe they would have maybe they would have even hit him better if he had his best stuff because they would have been prepared for what was coming and in this instance it's just like they're just flailing. I I don't think I saw one batter pick up his curveball once. No. And, and and like you said, to your point, like this, the version of Pedro that was on the scouting report was the version of Pedro that they saw in game one. He was, he, before he came out of the game, he was Pedro as we remember him in 1999. The Pedro that they saw during the regular season was the Pedro that was attacking with fastballs in the mid to upper 90s. Um, this version of Pedro was not on the scouting report. The guy that's throwing nine, 89 to 91, mostly change-ups, mostly breaking balls, occasional cutters. Like he would make left-handed hitters uncomfortable. Like he didn't throw a cutter that much during the season, but in some of the stuff I read um, about this game, Veritech mentions that he was throwing his cutter just to like mix in like a slightly different look because he didn't have his good fastball. So he, he couldn't make guys uncomfortable. He couldn't make lefties uncomfortable with his fastball in because it didn't have the velocity or the, or the um, explosion on it that it normally did. So what does he do? He pulls a cutter out of his back pocket, pounds lefties in with it, and then, and then he could throw 90 on the outer part of the plate or throw a changeup away and, and get a swing and a miss or really, really weak contact. And to me, to be able to, to do this, to do that in a must-win game in October against the best lineup in the American League, uh, where you're when you're not feeling a hundred percent, it's it's mind blowing to me that he was able to piece this together and put together six innings of no hit baseball. It's 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 so ridiculously impressive to me to have done that under these under you know this situation. He supposedly made the decision to start warming himself up. Supposedly he approached Williams and was like, you guys need me. I'm, I should probably go start warming up in the bullpen. And Williams is like, nah, we don't need you yet. And Pedro's like, yeah, you do. And Williams is like, 
no, we don't. And Pedro's like, I'm going to go start warming up. And Williams is like, okay. <laughs> and then, and then, and then when he gets there, he tells Rod Beck, who's the other pitcher warming up, he's like, you need to let me pitch. You need to let me be the one go in. Like you're the veteran, yes. you understand this. And Beck is like, yes. all right, yeah, you grinded through it for us this season. Like, yeah, you can do it. So he, it's really incredible that like even at this stage in his career, like Pedro just had complete, like commanded the respect of his peers in this yeah. way. His manager, his veteran players, like it was his like, even though he had this small stature and was not necessarily like this incredibly outspoken guy, like he was very like, he really did command that respect. It's funny how naive like the, the broadcasts are because they're talking about, uh, they're talking about Brandon Lowe and how they're hoping to get him through like the sixth or the seventh inning. And I'm just like, boy, do you guys not know what's going to hit you in like 10 minutes when Pedro comes into this game in the fourth? <laughs> That's true. Also, uh, pause for a second and do uh, Derek, a quick Derek Lowe appreciation. Oh, Derek Lowe. Did I say Brandon Lowe? Yeah, yeah. But we all know who you're talking about. <laughs> Brandon Lowe, Lowe for the Rays is cool too. He's tight. <laughs> uh, okay, so Derek Lowe uh, in this season, 1999, he appears in during the regular season. He appears in 74 games and pitches 91 and a third innings. So this is like he's. Or no, I'm sorry, he appears in 74 games and and racks up 109 and a third innings. I'm sorry. Ooh. So he's going. He's going multiples. Well, he's gone multiple innings almost every other game during the course of this season. So he's a guy. He's he saved 15 games. He finished 32 games. So he can he can give you multiple innings out of the bullpen. He had a sub one whip on the season. He had a two six ERA. He was he was nasty. He's an all the next season in 2000. Uh, he's an all star, a super reliever. Um, uh, appearing in 74 games again and racking up 42 saves, but like he's a guy. And so like he comes in and his first inning, when he cleans up a little bit of a mess, um, when he first comes in, he looks like he's going to settle in and start rolling. Yeah. And then he's, and then he comes back out for the next inning and, and it unfortunately doesn't go very well, but like they had Rod Beck warming up with Pedro because they weren't sure if Pedro was going to be able to get loose in time or they weren't sure if he was going to really be ready to go. Like he just, like you said, he was just, he just told Jimmy Williams, I'm going to go warm up. And they were like, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, they finally gave in and they were like, we'll get Rod Beck going also just, just in case yeah. maybe like, I don't know if the plan was to let Beck throw an inning or two and give Pedro more time to warm up. I really don't know like how they were, they, they were, they were thinking through this in real time, but, um, you're right. Pedro goes down there and he and he kind of tells Rod Beck what he's thinking, and Rod Beck's like, "Hey, you're the guy. Like, if you think you could, if you think you can do it, like, you know, I'll be here to back you up." But like, I had so much fun watching Pedro pitch for completely different reasons than uh, f- the reasons I normally enjoy watching Pedro pitch from this time, and yeah. and it was it, it was awesome. Yeah, I, <laughs> Derek Lowe. The amount of sinkers thrown in this game and in all of the games that Alex and I have gone back to watch for this series, it's like that is the one thing that I was just wasn't considering. But now looking back on it just makes these games feel prehistoric. There are so many sinkers being thrown and that has just been completely stripped out of the game now. Like yeah. there are obviously a few guys 
who rely on their sinker a lot still, but it's just it's fallen out of favor completely. But in the eighties and nineties, man, that hard sinker down and in from a righty to a righty was like the pitch. That was like the get me over pitch. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know what the velocities were, like, because they didn't have a radar gun during this time, but like Derek Lowe, like uh big duty six six and he i mean he pitched 17 years in the show he pitched and he did he did a little bit of everything he did kind of that multiple inning relief role uh he was uh, the full-time closer in two in in the year 2000 um the next year after this game happened uh he he was a two-time all-star but like you watch you watch low and naggy specifically from this game and that was like a very um much more common style of pitch than where they're attacking the strike zone. They're throwing the ball with movement. Uh, they're not racking up strikeouts, but they are pitching deep into games. These guys are going 200 innings every season, but only striking out maybe like four or five guys per nine innings. And it's just weird. It's just crazy how much has changed since then. But in the biggest moment uh, of the season for either of these teams, Pedro's out here. And I think I think such a big part of the way that Pedro was able to have success in this game was because of that changeup. In in those high pressure situations, it's almost like he was using the Indians' energies and adrenaline against them by using this changeup to exploit their aggressiveness. Um, when they when they wanted to score runs the most, like he was able to like pull back and stay calmer. Maybe it was because he wasn't feeling a hundred percent. Sometimes athletes get into this, this mode where uh, you think of the Jordan flu game where he, they're not feeling a hundred percent. All they're thinking about doing is executing and they're able to do things they wouldn't normally otherwise be able to do. They get into this zone where all they're thinking about is like, I just got to get this ball to the plate. I just got to execute this one pitch. And you stop thinking about all these other things. And he's out there like, executing some of the best change-ups uh in the biggest spots um and that's what it seemed like to me when i was watching when he's flipping these off speed pitches up there is the indians want so bad to put an exclamation point on this game and to bring the crowd to their feet um that they're they're coming unglued at these pitches and he's just content to let them like swing harder and harder and he just keeps taking more and more off and it's just incredible well put alex what's left Dump the rest of the notebook. Last last point I want to make, and it's very brief. Pour one out for Sean DePaula, the only other pitcher in this game who was actually any good. 25-year-old rookie, <laughs> Sean DePaula, who had made his major league debut a month before, started the season in single A and comes in in what is probably the biggest moment of his career and matches Pedro Martinez pitch for pitch. Three hitless innings, two walks, two Ks. I like nasty curveball. Nasty, nasty curveball. Yeah. Nasty. Seriously. So I I just want to give him his due because as bad as most of the pitching was in this game and as good as all of the offense was, I think and you know, because the Indians lose this game, like his performance is just one of the ones that gets lost in the annals of history. And if yeah. if the Indians win this game, like he is I mean, I'm not going to say he's the MVP of this game because like 12 guys had nine RBIs or whatever, but <laughs> but it's a it's a pretty incredible performance, and I 
So, so hats off to Sean DePaulo, wherever he is right now, hold up in quarantine. <laughs> Sean, as the last point on this game, and maybe you have some more to add too, but as my last question on this game, can you commit to, uh, in 2020, dressing up in, in uniform pants as Titus Pedro's and pitching? How do you think that would go? <laughs> it would not go well for me. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it might give uh, it might give you guys some content. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, Those his pants are so tight. I don't even know how he steps towards home. So tight. You guys were talking about this earlier, where they pan to Pedro in the dugout and they zoom in on his cleats. And first of all, my first thought was, "Oh my gosh, I had those cleats." Because I was I was old. I was old enough where like I'm watching these guys. Um, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I love those batting gloves. I, I had those cleats, like they kind of looked like the Griffies, but they were just the Nike cleats that year. And like, I, so I was like, oh my God, I had those cleats. My second thought was look how small his feet are. And then my third thought was like, those pants are, are painted on. And, um, for me, like I, I, I don't have the legs to pull that off at all, but uh, so I'm very grateful that's not the style anymore. But I think, who knows? I think I think Aaron would beg to differ. I think she would. <laughs> I think she'd be on our side in this one. No, I got chicken legs. I got I got uh, really disproportionate upper and lower body uh, symmetry. <laughs> and uh, but I'm wondering too, like in 20 years or whatever, because what was this game? 21 years ago. Um, are we going to look back and be like, why was everybody wearing their pants like that? Yeah, like, so loose. Yeah. But I, I don't know. There were a lot of interesting fashion choices in this game. I mentioned the the bacon neck t-shirts. I'm watching Saberhagen try to grind this game out. And he's just got like a beefy tee under his jersey. And I'm like, no wonder he doesn't feel comfortable on the mound. It's probably all bunched up like under his jersey. <laughs> um, yeah, he's trying to grind it out. I'm like, that's not going to work. There were mock turtlenecks galore in this game. Yeah. And like not comfy ones either. Like they're really high. They come all the way up uh, under the neck, almost to almost to like uh, your chin, and they're embroidered with like the team logos on the cross the front. And I'm like, how is that getting you ready to play? That can't work. Aaron wants more mock neck turtlenecks in baseball. <laughs> um, I don't know. Celebrity if you guys... guest appearance. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like, there were a bunch of like fun things like that that I was like, yeah, I probably came off of the field from my fall baseball game, like bundled up in a turtleneck uh, underneath my jersey and uh, my tightest heck baseball pants, wearing those same exact cleats. And uh, I probably came home and watched the end of this game. And um, I don't know. Uh, Oh, I getting to see Nomar's shenanigans again was really fun. Yeah. I almost like forgot about that. I'm like, wow, that was really annoying, wasn't it? And, but looking back (laughs) on it, I'm like, Damn, that was kind of swaggy too. Like, just like yeah. make make the pitcher wait. Just sit there. He's on your time. Make him wait. The things that become comedy about players by the end of their careers. Like, I was thinking about this with Derek Jeter too, because, um, like we, you know, we had floated maybe the seventeen K game against the Yankees, but we we didn't end up choosing it. But I went back and watched the highlights anyway, and Pedro was mowing down Derek Jeter. But the whole time I'm just watching Derek Jeter, I'm like. He does kind of look cool. Like his fresh young face is pretty cool. The batting gloves thing, like that's that's yes. signature, you know? Like that had become yes. parody. Like by the you know, you could do an SNL skit 
about Derek Jeter stepping out of the box and fixing his gloves for 25 minutes and no pitch ever right. being thrown by the end of his career. But when it becomes so repetitive for great players, like it is sort of nostalgic to feel them do it again. Even if during the moment you were like, all right, man, get back in the box. Like I'm trying to watch some baseball. Also like, yeah. I think, I think we all have those ticks, you know, like before we sit down podcasting, I'm like, all right, let me straighten my shirt a little bit. Uh, <laughs> left arms a little bunched up. Got to get the vocal cord, you know, like, like I actually cut are, my sleeves for this pod. We are the Nomar Garcia para to podcasting. I think that's, that's where I'm netting out on this. <laughs> I think people also forget how good Nomar was. Yeah, I, like I, really I do. I, God, yeah. I don't know if that. I don't know like how that even happens. Um, but like, oh my, he was so good. And I got I one. I'm not kidding. One of the highlights of my career um, was being uh, in spring training, Bailey spring training with the A's in 2009 when Pedro was on the team, and I got to work in at first base taking ground balls with Jason Giambi and Nomar Garcia Parra. And that was like one of the coolest experiences of my whole baseball career. I'll never forget it. Um, both of them were incredibly nice to me, a young guy that had never been above double uh, a. And, um, but like as a baseball fan, as someone that grew up um, loving the game and following everything that I could find um, that was that was unbelievable for me, and I, I, I could have. I wish I, I wish I had told him that I'm gonna go back and watch uh, your game from 1999 and talk about how good you were. Well, we'll have our people reach out to his people and just maybe <laughs> send this over. <laughs> is that where is that where you learned the power change up, Sean? <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out, man. And and, and I watch I watch uh, Strauss. Strauss and Max both they have different versions of of they throw different change ups. Um, but actually Strauss's changeup might be cl- the closest to what we have in the game right now to Pedro, the way that he used it. Um, Pedro, it, it's almost like Pedro would have preferred to put guys away with his fastball. Um, but he would take a shot up above the zone. He would take a shot with a fastball away. And if neither of those worked, he would come back with the changeup into a righty, which at, especially at that point, you didn't see right on right changeups that much. You didn't see left on left changeups that much because very few pitchers had the movement profile and the shape to it in order to get away with it. It was considered to be like um, something you did not do throw, throw left on left or right on right changeups because if you didn't put it exactly where you wanted to put it, it gave the hitter a really good chance to get the barrel out on, on the ball. Even if he was fooled, you could get the barrel out use your hands and still be able to do some serious damage. But his was so good. Um, him and Maddox were probably two of the only guys at the time that used their, that used right on right changeups uh, to this effect during this time. And in this game, he does it quite a bit, um, you know, much in the way that, that Strauss and, and Max use their changeups uh, against righties right now. All right. Should we, should we move on to Alex's Wikipedia deep dive, which still, to this point, does not have an official name. You want to hang around for this, Sean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a uh, this is a story about Albert Bell and <laughs> and the stolen baseball bat. Sean, do you know this story? Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, I was I was vaguely familiar with it, although I didn't know all of the details. And I know that Bobby hasn't heard it in full either, and some of our listeners may not uh, have heard it either. 
So I want to recount it for you right now, because still to this day, it's one of the most batshit insane things that has ever happened in Major League Baseball. So ever. let's uh, let's rewind a bit back from that 99 ALDS. It's, uh, it's 1994, and Albert Bell, who's an outfielder for the Cleveland Indians, is among the most feared power hitters in the game. He would finish top three in MVP voting three years in a row and would hit 50 home runs in 95. He's a great baseball player. And uh, and he's made even more great because he corked his baseball bats. All of his baseball bats were corked. That's not conspiracy. That's just like straight fact. Like multiple teammates afterwards, including Omar Vizquel, were like, yeah, every every single bat of his. Which is like... Wild, wild west. The 90s were the wild, wild west. The 90s were just weird baseball. So it's July 15th, 1994. Cleveland Indians are facing off against the Chicago White Sox at Comiskey Park. And the two teams are battling for first in the AL Central. It's the first inning, and White Sox manager Gene Lamont gets tipped off that Albert Bell is indeed using a corked baseball bat. And so he approaches the umpires and basically requests a challenge of the bat. Uh, and so the umpires confer, and they confiscate Bell's bat. They take it back into the, uh, into the umpire's dressing room, and they lock it in there, right? And so they'll, they're like, we'll deal with this after the game. We'll send it to the league to uh, investigate. So the Indians know that the bat is corked and they're fearing losing their their power hitter in the middle of this playoff race in July. And uh, and so they come up with a plan to get the bat back. Jason Grimsley, who's a reliever for the Indians, takes a bat that belongs to first baseman Paul Sorrento. He climbs into an area above the false ceiling of the visiting manager's office and crawls through the ductwork in the ceiling until he reaches the umpire's room. He goes into the room, drops <laughs> into the room, switches the bats out, and uh, and makes it safely back to the dugout. And it's a perfect crime, right? <laughs> no one notices. Uh, except for around the sixth inning, a custodian just rolling through, rolling through the umpire's dressing room, notices that there's a little bit of like the ceiling tile on the floor and sees some like twisted screws in the ceiling. And so he lets the the White Sox know. And after the game, the umpires obviously come back and are like, this is not the same bat that we put here in the first inning. It's weird that this says Paul Sorrento on it. Why was Al Albert Bell using Paul Sorrento's bat? And why was it corked? <laughs> <laughs> so the Chicago police are called in. MLB oh flies God. in a former FBI agent to help with the investigation, and they dust the room for fingerprints. Uh, and ultimately, they discover the path what? that Grimsley has taken through the duct to uh, to retrieve the bat. So they basically they don't know that Grimsley's behind it, but they figure out the entire plan because it's a major league baseball team. And what do you expect when they're coming up with like heists just on the fly? The actual plot of Mission Impossible doesn't work in a baseball stadium, guys. <laughs> it literally doesn't. But the fact that they were able to pull this off is like ridiculous. The fact that six foot three Jason Grimsley could climb through ductwork and descend into a room. Apparently, he like ran into a groundskeeper there who just like didn't say anything, who like made eye contact or whatever, and was That's like, the homie. was like, nah, you, you do you. I didn't see this. <laughs> Anyway, the, the AL orders the Indians to return his bat, threatens to get the FBI actually involved, and the Indians are like, fuck that, yeah, this is too much for us, we'll just eat the suspension. And so they hand over the bat, the, the bat is cut in half, they find out it's corked, 
Albert Bell is suspended for uh, 10 games, which is reduced to seven, which ultimately doesn't matter because the season is canceled due to the 94 player strike. Albert Bell. <laughs> I did not. I did not know that the authorities got involved yeah. in that way. Like I did not know that they were taking fingerprints and bringing in FBI agents <laughs> <laughs> over but a like, bat. But like, I still can't get over picturing Jason Grimsley crawling through an air conditioning duct. Cause you mentioned he's six, three, he's a big dude. Um, I, I, I can't, I can't, I love to know like what happened during the, the, the brainstorming session behind the scenes when, uh, they decided that yeah, Grimsley was going to be the guy to do this. Like there had to have been other guys that would have fit, maybe fit better. Yeah. I don't know. I, I would love to know if like he came up with the idea himself <laughs> or like who, uh, who said no before Grimsley was like, I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. Or, right. Like, <laughs> is it like, is it like a coach comes up with it and he's like, all right, Will Harris, you're up. And he's like, I'm not doing it. Tanner Rainey, why don't you do it? And then Tanner Rainey's like, I think Doolittle would be good for it. <laughs> Oh man, because like in 1994, he's 26. He's been in the league for parts of five seasons, so like he's probably a, maybe a little bit lower on the totem pole. But like, there had to have been somebody else that he could have. Like, if he said no, there had to have been somebody else that could have done it. But why make a player do it at all? Why not make Why not make like a Bat Boy do it? Right. That that's a whole other thing. I think maybe maybe the thinking is like. He's probably not going to pitch in this game. So if like he gets stuck up there, like no one will notice. And then after the game, we can just like knock him down, you know, and wreak havoc back there. But my other thinking about this is like, why did they use a different player's bat that was like emblazoned with his name on his it? His name. Yeah. Like why they were a generic bat. Yeah. Why? Or like, yeah. Strange stuff. Weird brain. That's a good question. That seems like a, if you're if you're smart enough to come up with this plan and you're able to pull a plan like this off that has so many moving parts where you're crawling through air conditioning ducts, like you should at least have the forethought to put another Albert Bell bat in there. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe or something all of that his looks like an Albert, <laughs> literally every single bat. Like that's where the plan started to hurt where they were like, we'll switch this Albert Bell bat out with a Paul Sorrento bat and no one will know the difference. Yeah, I think I think Grimsley really just kind of wanted to feel like a hero. So it didn't really matter whether the bat was was correct or not. It was just like he wanted to feel like he was doing something to just like help out the team. And if you're not going to pitch in the game, like maybe do a little uh, Mission Impossible style. Yeah, (laughs) I'm trying to imagine this game, this this event happening in like 2019. And (laughs) this would definitely be videotaped, like even if it wasn't for public consumption, like Grimsley would have just like videotaped him on Snapchat and been like, yo, I'm switching out the bat and like send it to all of his <laughs> friends and it would have leaked and like it would have been a whole big online scandal as well as like an FBI scandal. Who who in the Nationals clubhouse do you think would be crazy enough to volunteer to crawl through an air duct to switch out bats? Is there anyone who you think would be like, yeah, I'll wear that one for the team? Like would... I don't know. Would Scherzer do it? Like, <laughs> <laughs> if it wasn't his day, I'm sure he would. <laughs> he would not. He wouldn't be afraid. Um, the problem is, uh, I, I don't know if he would fit in the vent. Um, He's a big dude. Yeah. 
I guess if I guess if Grimsley's fitting in the vent, like I, I honestly don't know. Yeah, maybe the vent is like way bigger than we think. Maybe it was like a, a, a comfy fit for Grimsley. It's still a <laughs> it's still a vent in the ceiling, and I would have I can't believe like I'm picturing him in uniform and what is is it Die Hard where Bruce Willis is in the vent? Yeah, and, yeah. And he and he open it, doesn't he have like a lighter and he's like mm-hmm. crawling around and and I'm just picturing him coming out of the vent with his Indians uniform just covered in dust and holding the Albert Bell bat and thinking he got away with it and like for for like an inning or two they had to have thought that they were just like the smartest people in the world <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and even like it takes a couple days. I mean, the league figures out what happens and then they're like, okay, send us the bat. Like at that point, you've give you've bought yourself enough time to at least just send an uncorked Albert Bell bat, right? Like, unless you just like don't want to get yourself in even more deep. But like, I don't know. You were able to crawl through air ducts to get the bat. Like you can figure out a way to like if you if you really want to make this work, I th- I feel like they could have. They just didn't want it enough. I think that's what it is. I'm shocked that this didn't start like a um like a spike in incidents of people, other people from other teams crawling into the ducks to get in, <laughs> to get into the umpire's room to do like other weird stuff, like yeah, putting in like uh, I don't know, like what they what else they could have done, putting in doctored baseballs or like. Even just like leaving like messages for the umpire and to be like, <laughs> we, you're our favorite umpire signed <laughs> Boston well, that, Red Sox. That begs the question, why would you need to go through the air ducts to do that? You could just slide a note under the door at that point. <laughs> yeah, well, you a don't... note with like a $20 bill attached to it. It's like, it's going to be a tight zone today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is too good. All right. Well, we've now officially taken up all of your Sunday, Sean. So we're uh we should wrap it up and uh i want to thank you so much for giving us so much of your time and attacking this exercise with so much so much verve and energy this was a lot of fun and you brought like some real deep cut baseball stats to this about pedro and the rest of the indians and red sox team so thank you so much for doing this man this was a lot of fun thank you for having me guys i had so much fun with this um i will definitely be following along uh, to the other games that you guys um, end up doing uh, dives into and taking a look at. So I just want to say thank you for, for giving me a chance to be a part of it. All right, Alex, is there anything you need to leave the listeners with? I feel like we left them with a lot already think we gave them a lot you know what we didn't do is pick the game that we're gonna do next week although we do we have a we have a i think we're gonna have a bit of a a different kind of episode coming to you next week that will that will feature another familiar face so so stick around from that and keep your keep your eyes on our twitter feed tipping underscore pitches for uh, for more on that soon yes exactly we did not pick the game in large part because uh, usually when you and I pick the game, it's just me being like, fuck, we didn't pick a game. And you being like, ugh. And then us being waiting like 10 minutes while we look through MLB Vault. And I don't I don't think it would have been very... It would have been kind of rude for us to make Sean, Sean sit around for that. <laughs> I, I think he would have gone through it with us. I mean, he gave us... He gave us five different options, and many of those games were were ones I want to watch anyway. So maybe that's our maybe that's our working list at this point going forward. Maybe, maybe. 
Uh, thank you as always for listening. This was a lot of fun to do, and we appreciate you taking the time out to listen to it uh, in these times where baseball is absent. We're going to continue to do this and other fun ideas, and we'll be back in your feeds next Monday. Stop.